You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 266. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You've reached another Local Maximum, celebrating five years of Local Maximums for you this year, actually, that back on February 6th, so two weeks ago, episode two, uh, 254, uh, 264 was the five-year anniversary of the, of the Local Maximum. Doesn't that go fast? If you've been with us for a while, please consider helping me reach my goal of 50 supporting listeners on Maximum.Locals.com. I know that there are, uh, 50 doesn't sound like that high of a number, but I know a lot of people just listen for free which is fine. Um, But hopefully I'm trying to get a few people to support us on Locals and get a really great community going there. 50 for for five years, maybe that makes sense. Not only will you support the show, which you love, for only $4 a month, but you get access to our community where we'll have further discussions and commentary way better than the discourse that you have on Reddit, I can assure you. Uh, Basically, this is just a direct line to me and Aaron, so you could ask us anything uh, more conveniently. A single month counts. Uh, So please sign up with uh, Winter 23. You get one free month and then just do another free month. And if you don't like it, it still counts towards my 50. So uh, (laughs) that that, that is a good one to do. So, uh, so, So please help me out there. It's so easy. Uh, last week, we talked about the multi-armed bandit. I thought that was going to go over a lot of people's heads. Maybe it did, but I actually got a lot of emails from people and a lot of messages about the uh, multi-armed bandit episode. Uh, people really liked it. People people thought it was interesting. Um, I, people got something out of it. So maybe I'll do more of those kind of mathematics, read paper type of episode. I don't want to turn this show into kind of a, a PhD seminar or something like that, uh, but I do want to try to discuss ideas and try to figure out, well, you know, what does that mean for technologists? What does it mean for the average person? So I think that, I think that helps quite a bit. All right. Uh, today, we, we are going to talk more about technology. We're going to bring you more AI content today. And specifically, we're going to talk about natural language processing. But going further than that, we're going to talk about strategies for thinking about simplicity, complexity, and prioritization because my guest today, uh, in addition to being a software engineer and a data scientist, is also a seasoned author and a speaker. Uh, you know, I just go on his website. He has tons of um, tons of examples of of talks, all with slides. It's all really like interesting and engaging, and and, and kind of gives you food for thought. So it's uh, it's worth going to uh, his website at. Uh, oh shoot, I should probably do it at the end or should I do it at the beginning? Uh, but maybe um, maybe I will just do it at the beginning. It's joelgruce.com, J-O-E-L-G-R-U-S.com. I'll also give it uh, at the end. I first found him recently at the online NormCon, online uh, uh, conference NormConf with the talk, what's the simplest thing that might possibly work and why didn't you try that first? Joel Gruce, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for having me. I uh, I, I appreciate you having on, and uh, I know you've done some podcasting yourself at one point. So uh, we're we're you know we're going to bring this? it back at some point. We keep oh, talking about it. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, that's well, what was your podcast called? It's called Adversarial Learning. It's me and Adversarial Andrew Musselman. Learning. Okay. So uh, 
if you want to, uh, when you do bring it back, definitely uh, let us know. Announce it. You could come on this show and announce it, and uh, or I could forward it to my audience. So, so that's exciting. Exciting. I'll uh, I'll I'll look into it. We, we, um, it, I, it wasn't deliberately. We it wasn't a deliberate hiatus. It was more we just got busy and then stopped recording episodes. I know that's what happens. It's really people don't realize it. Ta- doing a podcast episode takes out a lot more than you expect. Like right now, we're recording what half hour, a half hour, and it's like okay, that's just a little bit of time in my calendar. But then now I realize I have to have like you know uh, wind down time and then uh, and then rev up time. <laughs> there's like a whole uh, there's like a whole hour before and after that uh, that I that I need to uh, always block off. But anyway. Uh, I first heard of you actually recently at, at NormConf, which, um, by the way, I really enjoyed that that conference. So how, how did you hear about that? And how did you come up with your talk, which uh, that was the only one that was the main one that caught my eye because the title was what's the simplest thing you can do? And why didn't you do that? Um, so I'm friends with a bunch of the NormConf organizers. Honestly, it was a, it was a conference that ran uh, largely on cronyism. Uh, and, and so, you know, I know the organizers and, and they asked a lot of their friends to come and speak. It, it so happens that they knew a lot of yeah. people who are prominent in the data science community, uh, one way or another. Um, and so, uh, as soon as they announced it, uh, I said, oh, I'll speak there. Uh, it's always fun to have an excuse to, to speak. Um, as for yeah. why I chose that topic, um, a couple things happened. One is that, uh, I'm someone who really has always has always recently embraced the idea of simplicity. Um, and I like simple solutions to things. I like clean code that's not too complicated. I like, you know, trying simple things before complicated things. And, and so, you know, I used to run data science slash machine learning slash engineering teams. And when people would bring me something complicated, I, I, I'd say, did you try something simple first? And if they said no, I'd say, why not? And, and after a while they would anticipate that and then just start, um, you know, tr- trying more simple things. And, and so that mindset w- was sort of half of why I started uh, thinking about that talk. Um, the the other half was sort of an opposite experience, which is that uh, I started talking to a lot of people who are working on natural language processing problems or text classification problems. And they would tell me, oh, I'm trying a naive base classifier or, you know, I'm going to do word to vec vectors and then something, something else. Um, things that in some ways are really simple approaches to the problem, right? If you, naive base is maybe the first thing you teach someone about how to do text classification and you can implement it yourself in an afternoon. Um, but at the same time, my reaction was naive base is so bad compared to, you know, using BERT or something and fine tuning it. Like, why would you even waste your time when you know you're going to get much better results the other way? Um, and so that caused kind of a tension inside of me that, you know, usually I say, try the simplest possible thing first, but here's this other situation where uh, someone did ostensibly a simple thing. And I'm like, why did you, why did you waste your time doing that? Um, and so some of the talk was about trying to sort of square those two instincts with, within myself. Yeah, so I, I've been through that with text classification, so I want to get into that in a little bit. But it sounds like, you know, from the uh, from the talk, I was thinking about it. Like, it's it's one thing to say I'm going to embrace simplicity, but it, in reality, when you do it, it's not so simple. Like, there's there's um, 
there's uh, there's some deception when it comes to what is simple and what is complex. So I don't know if um, if there's a way. I you know you just spoke about like that 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 contradiction with, with which is like naive Bayes uh, versus Bert. Like what what is the what's at the heart of the tension there? Is that something that 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 comes up in other areas as well? Yeah. So the, so there's a couple of things there. Um, one is that, you know, the naive Bayes is a model with not a large number of parameters. Um, and it's simple to implement. It's simple to train. Um, at the same time, if you talk about BERT, it's a very complex transformer model with, you know, millions or probably hundreds of millions of parameters. And, and so if you compare, here's a model with a thousand parameters and here's a model with, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of parameters, then, you know, intuitively, the one with hundreds of millions of parameters is, is a lot more complicated. And the one with, you know, a thousand parameters is a lot more simple. Um, and, and so I think you, you have a lot of situations like that. At the same time, you know, uh, I use the example in my talk. If you read the BERT paper and said, I want to apply that to my problem, you were signing up for writing thousands of lines of code to get this thing implemented. Um, and over time, Hugging Face came out with a Transformers library and started a hub of all these pre-trained models. And now today you could fine tune a burnt model using, you know, five to 10 lines of code, probably not any more code than it would take you to train the naive based classifier model. So from a kind of building tooling and scaffolding perspective, suddenly you have this very complex model in some sense, which is just as simple to use and get much better results as the model that's simpler in some, you know, abstract sense. And then on top of that, one nice thing, and this is a little bit more to do with text classification or NLP than other things, is that in all these burnt models, you shove your text in as is, right? Because it understands, understands is maybe the wrong word, but it understands that the word walk and the word walking are related and sort of takes that into account automatically. Whereas if you're using an A-based classifier, you might have to do stemming, you might have to remove stop words. You have to make all these different modeling choices, which are in some ways arbitrary, and in some ways are like adding all this extra complexity to the model, because suddenly it's not just, I took a pre-trained thing and shoved my text through it. It's I took you know a simple thing, but then I started making a large number of decisions about how I want to feed my thing through it. Right. So I, I've been through this exactly with Foursquare. I, you know, built out their, the natural language processing pipeline. And this is all from like 2012 to 2015. And so there was no BERT. Um, but uh, what what I ended up doing was, um, well, for, for one of the app, for one of the main applications, it was sentiment analysis. And we had a lot of likes and dislikes. So we kind of were able to put together a, a large training set. And so Started with naive Bayes after some language detection and 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 tokenization and stemming, uh, then moved on to logistic regression, which uh, which beat naive Bayes by a lot, um, and we also did it on like a four gram model. So we had uh, uh, all sorts of different phrases in there. The model was really really cool, but <laughs> I, I get I get what you mean about having to make all of these decisions within that. Like we tried tons of different things. Like well, uh, is it would it work to like, I remember one project that really was a waste of time. I was like, well, maybe it doesn't make sense, um, in, in to do a four gram if they like, you know, if the, if the four words in sequence span two sentences, you know, so, or, to, or like, you know, or, 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 or skip over a comma because they're in two different phrases. So let's just like, 
remove those from uh, from the features of of a given piece of text that we're trying to classify. And so I did all this work, and it was like the the end model was worse. It didn't it didn't do anything. So uh, yeah. You know, so, it, 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 in some ways, it's similar to the you know the ever present desire to figure out how to use neural networks on tabular data instead of like you know XGBoost or something because with XGBoost you have to do all this feature engineering and there's you know so many things okay I'll bucket it and then I'll look at this and I'll cut it off here um, whereas in theory uh, you know if you just throw it into a deep learning model then maybe the feature engineering you get it for quote unquote free um, but you know I, I think people have had less success there. So it sounds like when looking at trying to analyze the complexity of a project, we have to have like a much broader view than it's not just the complexity of the model. It's the complexity of the code. It's the complexity of the team. It's the it's how the abstractions are laid out. There's a lot more to it than just um, now. It sounds like my analysis of complexity is getting a little too complex. Or right. I, 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 of... but, but yeah, like I think the way I put it was as our tools get better um, and as our abstractions get better, Things that previously were very complex to do and understand and implement become much simpler, right? And so right. simple and complex are not decisions that can be made in some kind of abstract vacuum, but they're really a function of, you know, what is the tooling we have? What are the resources we have? Uh, and so on. So how do you know if something's ready for prime time? Because... You know, there would have been a time with uh, with Bert, for example, in like 2018. I don't know when this was, when like it would have been like, okay, this is not this is not ready for us yet. Um, and so, how do you, uh, you know, do you kind of have to keep your pulse on the on the latest research and try to try to figure it out? And you know, it seems like you might have one impression, and then that knowledge might get old after a few years. Um, yeah. So most knowledge uh, gets old after a few years, but. I think it depends, right? Like some problems uh, need state of the art and some problems, every percentage point of accuracy or F1 or whatever is worth, you know, millions of dollars if you're doing something at, you know, Amazon scale or whatever. And then at the same time, at the other end of the spectrum, you know, maybe it's the case that your four square sentiment analysis model, that if you improve it by 5%, it's not that like it, it affects people at the margin, but it's not going to like drive that much change. Um, and, yeah. and so, so I think those are some of the calculations that need to go into it, right? Like, okay, yeah. I'm going to get an incremental I'm potentially going to get an incremental improvement by staying on top of the state of the art. How much is that incremental improvement worth to me? And that's a function of my problem and my business and so on and so forth. Um, and, and so I think there are some places where, you know, it would be worthwhile and they probably have enough people dedicated to it to say, Bert was published. Let's try it on our data tomorrow, even though we're going to have to, you know, write a lot of ugly code and debug a lot of stuff and figure out how to get it to work and so on and so forth. Um, and then there's also places where, you know, you say that looks interesting. And once the tooling around it is sufficient that, you know, my data scientists can work with it, we'll give it a try, but that doesn't need to be this month or next month. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this, I mean, I enjoy these like kind of philosophical discussions about it because I feel like this helps people even who are not in data science, even who are not machine learning, just people who work on really anything, um, you know, th th this applies to who are, who are listening today. So let me, uh, you know, I haven't looked at the Foursquare NLP pipeline since maybe 2018, maybe 2019. Um, so help me update my skills. Let's let's talk about what what this is, Bert and, and, and Transformers. Like what uh, what is it doing that a um, 
that uh, either a logistic regression n-gram model or even a, a neural net isn't doing? So, um, okay, I'll do a little bit of a, of a history lesson here. Um, yeah. So, you know, with naive Bayes or like an n-gram model, you're basically saying, I'm going to chop this thing into words and then, you know, basically treat it as a bag of words in some sense, right? So I take a document and I don't care that much about word order, modulo what I capture through the n-grams. And I'm just going to count how many times the occurs, how many times bad occurs and so on. And, you know, now I have a vector of counts and I'm going to use some method to say, I'm going to turn that vector into, you know, a probability of positive sentiment or negative sentiment, right? And so logistic regression is, is sort of the, the natural thing uh, to do there. But the problem is that, um, there's a couple problems. One, uh, you've thrown away word order and word order is very important, right? Like if I have, you know, negations or whatever, and, uh, you know, I, I say, this is not terrible. Well, you know, if, if I don't know to associate the not with the terrible, then you just say terrible. That's a huge negative word. So it's, yeah. Um, so, and so that's, that's why, that's why the, 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 the model that we had where we looked at all phrases of length one through four actually fixed that problem. I mean, I, I guess you could have had something of length five or some complex thing that, but it really solved all the problems with that. Right. Right. So you, I, as much yeah, as so, so that will help with the, the shorter range uh, dependencies, but then when you have like longer range things, um, right. The, the second problem has to do with like stemming and similar words. Right. So uh, like I said, you know, walk and walking, if you're just, embedding things as like a vector of, uh, you know, here are the words that are in there, then a one in the walk place and the one in the walking place have nothing to do with each other other than what you sort of train through your objective function, right? But there's, there's no way to bake into there the knowledge that those are sort of the same word and are related and things like that. Um, and, and so one step from there was then, uh, you know, what you could call the word vector error. So like word to vec, glove vec, where uh, for yeah. each word you get um, instead of like a, let's say a one hot embedding where like, if it's the word walk, you get a one in, you know, position 134, which is the walk position, you get some sort of dense embedding in some, you know, 500 dimensional space or whatever. And you do it in a way that that embedding somehow captures the meaning of the word so that walk and walking get embeddings that are similar in some sense. Right. And so then, you know, we've taken a step towards. Uh, this problem of how do we represent these words in, in a way that captures their, their semantics a little bit. Um, and then, so, so, you know, the next step would be instead of doing this one hot encoding or whatever with the engrams, we could do, um, you know, do the word vectors, take the average and then train logistic regression on top of that. Um, but then we still are not taking like word order into account. So then, you know, you can introduce this concept of recurrent neural networks. So like LSTMs and, and so on and so forth. And what you do is, um, instead of just averaging all your word vectors together, you sort of feed them into this stateful neural network where as you feed like one word vector in at a time, it builds up a state that depends on the previous things you've um, fed in and sort of puts the word vectors in context so that, you know, if you have the same word, but it's in a different sentence, something so, sort of slightly different will happen to it. And then you get some state that captures either, you know, a sequence of contextual word vectors or maybe just a vector representing the whole sentence and you can classify those and that was kind of let's say the state of the art pre-bert sort of that, that was kind of what a lot of people were doing pre-bert and so and so bert did, did um here's what bert did bert said 
rather than using these recurrent neural networks, which are sort of a pain because you have to do them one step at a time, right? If I have a, if I have a sentence with 200 right. tokens in it, I feed in the first token, update the state, feed in the second token. And so it's a sequential process that, you know, takes 200 tokens is they said, instead of doing that, um, we're going to use, uh, there's this concept of attention that's used within, uh, you know, neural networks, which is basically when I have a position of my input, like what other positions are, is it related to? And so they replaced the, the recurrence in the neural network with this idea of self-attention, which is um, instead of like looking at the things before me, I'm just going to look across all the other positions in the sentence. Um, and the nice thing about that is that I can do that in parallel, right? So each, each position looks across all the other positions in parallel. So, so now if I have like 200, um, spots in my sentence, um, I can, and I have enough GPUs, I can just do each of those self-attentions in parallel, right? And so that allows me to train much faster, which means I can train much bigger models. Um, okay, but well, uh, and maybe this is, um, um, I don't know if this is a question that makes sense and, and maybe that maybe maybe it's where I'm deficient in my, uh, my uh, mental model of, of these transformer models. But if you have a sentence, let's say, let's say it's a let's say it's like 20 words if i'm trying to run through word 5 i'm also have to pass through words 1 through 4 and then i have to pass through 6 through 20 um but you know it's it seems like the model's going to have to run a little bit differently depending on what position your word is in because it has more to look back at and more to look forward to whereas in the recurrent neural network you're just kind of it's obvious how to pass it in one at a time. One at a time. Um, in, in other words, how does it take into account that your history, the um, the the word that you're giving it in the into the network, can have a variable number of words before it and after it? Um, right. So 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 that's a fair point. Um, but basically, what it's doing is is it's doing a matrix multiplication that um, takes each word and then multiplies it by a matrix and then multiplies it by sort of the matrix of all the words, right? And so it's the same, it's basically the same sort of computation and the the dimensions are set up in such a way that you're doing a matrix multiplication and then you have some length and you get, a, you get that same length out, right? Okay, so it sounds like there's sort of a context up to that point and then there's a, a context after that point and those are like matrices. Well- Am I thinking about this right or no? Um, not exactly, because uh, okay. within the transformer model, it's not really making that distinction between before and after like that, the way you're describing it. There, there are, you know, there were a few pre-burnt models that, are, that were basically trying to generate contextual embeddings that were looking at that. And they'd say, I'm going to run one recurrent neural network in the forward direction and one in the backward direction and build up the state from both sides and, and so on and so forth. But here we're just saying, I have a word. I also have a sentence worth of words, and I'm going to use those two things to um, generate, you know, some, some context. Okay. Okay. Got it. Uh, so, um, what have, have you used this personally? What, what are some of your, like, um, what are some of your best use cases when it comes to text classification that, um, that you've seen? So I've done it a lot for, um, so, so I've done it in, in a couple ways. One, um, let's say, uh, categorization. So, you know, I have a bunch of texts that may fit into like a bunch of different categories. Right. So, um, you know, I run a call center and, and I have all these call transcripts and, and I know that, you know, this person called because, uh, their widget arrived broken and they're upset about it. And this person called cause they didn't understand how to read the instructions. And this person called because, uh, they're angry cause the battery was, 
not included and they thought battery is going to be included. Um, and so if I have a set of categories that, you know, I've decided is how I want to think about, you know, my customers and their problems, then, uh, and I have some labeled data, I can train uh, a burnt model to to pick those out quite nicely. And and the other thing that, that, that maybe I didn't mention that I should was that, you know, for the, uh, for the either logistic regression or even the RNN models that we're talking about, you're basically starting with random weights and trying to learn what's going on. And so you need a lot of data to learn that. With these transformer models, what you're doing is it turns out that the transform, like BERT is pre-trained on a large corpus of data, right? Like billions of documents. And so what that means is that a lot of quote unquote understanding of language is baked into that from the beginning, which mm. means that for a lot of applications, you can fine tune it using a very small data set and get good results, right? So, you know, rather than having to have, you know, tens of thousands of labeled data points, you could get away with like a couple hundred maybe and just fine tune the model, which again, already starts off knowing all this stuff about how right. language is structured and well, that's, get good results. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's huge. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's not just the cost savings, but it's literally like, it, it sounds like you could almost get away with doing labeling in-house, uh, you know, I mean, a hundred labels, 200 labels, like a person could do, okay, like maybe, you know, get an intern if you need to do like a thousand or so, but yeah, like, it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but not like, yeah. not much. Um, right, right. Well, yeah, but it's not, no, like, um, we were using hundreds of thousands, yep. you know, uh, to, to get logistic regression. To, I don't know if it, it probably could have worked with less. I mean, I guess we could see that because it was like we were running one for every single language, which was like, um, you know, that maybe the top five to 10 languages kind of worked. And so maybe it was maybe the 10th most popular language had like 40,000, 50,000 examples. Um, but yeah, how does BERT, by the way, do with uh, different languages? Does it Does it have... Uh, a different model for every language or does it kind of um does it kind of is it kind of a universal <laughs> understanding type of a thing um i know people have trained different ones for different languages and they get, tend to give them like yeah, well, cutesy names like i think i think there's one called like camembert which is uh french and and so on and so forth um i don't actually know off the top of my head how the original bert does on multilingual stuff i know some of these big transformer models people do train them to be multilingual i'm not sure uh, I don't actually know if yeah. no, like it's, that or not. It's always an interesting problem because it's it's never quite as as cut and dry as you want it to be. It's it's never like, oh, these different languages are all, you know, different walled gardens where each user is going to speak one language and each piece of, piece of text is going to be one language and it it just it, things just it, it's it's not even the case that each piece of text has the same character set from like one sentence to another so oftentimes you we run into these problems at least i did and i'm sure that's probably right I, I mean you know on some level all these models are doing is, is learning uh you know associations between words or tokens right? Um, right so like bird is trained off of this objective of mass language modeling so they'll give it a sentence and then like blank out a few of the words randomly and then the model has to learn to predict what it what is the missing word right um right and, and so you know if in theory if you feed it like a lot of english sentences but also a lot of spanish sentences then it will learn you know both of them right because when it sees surrounding spanish words then it'll predict the missing spanish word and so on and so forth now in practice i don't know if that's you know the best thing to do or if having different models is the best thing to do yeah, I'm pretty sure the logistic regression model would would do worse if we kind of just threw all the languages in there. 
uh, because even though, well, first of all, sometimes the same literal characters have different meanings across different languages. Uh, and then secondly, it would, I don't know. Well, first of all, it would also like, um, it would also be like a lot more space because we'd have to, uh, at least for the logistic regression model, we'd have to, um, I don't know, maybe it could work. I, I didn't try it. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like it would work very well. Well, the thing that's hard to wrap your mind around, I think, is that yeah. the model capacity in these uh, transformer models is huge, right? So your logistic regression yeah. model, even if, you know, even if you go up to four grams, you're still, you know, it's still like thousands of parameters, right? Like th like thousands of features and weights for thousands yeah. of features. Oh, it could be way more. I mean, we ended up throwing out everything that wasn't used at least like five times in the corpus. Right. And still, that was enormous. And, and, and so, you know, in, in the BERT model, again, you're talking about like literally hundreds of millions of parameters, right? And so right. within hundreds of millions of parameters, there's a lot of space to learn patterns. Um, right. And 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 so there's there's room to learn multiple languages. And for instance, if you go to like ChatGPT, for instance, which is a bigger model than BERT, but if you go to ChatGPT and you start like talking to it in a different language, it will answer in a different language. Yeah. Oh, I should try that. That sounds pretty cool. So I, I, this is kind of exciting. Like I am looking forward to hopefully if I have an NLP project in the future, uh, you know, working with one of these models, it sounds, uh, it sounds really neat. Um, what, what do you think are some common mistakes people make when they're doing NLP and text classification um, or things that could go wrong? Uh, so, so, so one thing that can go wrong is if your data is labeled, uh, poorly, um, and so a lot of times what I've seen is um, in multi-class classification, the classes are maybe not distinct enough, right? So, uh, you, you know, if, if you're trying to determine what what is this, you know, complaint about to go back to my earlier, you know, example, and, you know, one was batteries not included and one was, um, you know, I, I didn't receive it on time, things like that. Like if your categories are not um, distinct enough, then even like a perfect labeler will still like get it wrong, right? Because they'll say, oh, I, I guess it's this or that. Um, and and so I, I think that's uh, I think that's one problem that, that I run into uh, multiple times uh, in a lot of contexts. Um, I think, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, I, I agree. I was going to give some personal examples, but if yeah. you had one more. No, no, go ahead. Go. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I, I think... Um, so there were things like um, some of the classifications that we did include sentiment analysis, which uh, did have some wiggle room. Like there were some mixed reviews and, and then there were some kind of statements that were not reviews at all. And so we had really four different uh, categorizations there. Um, and then um, in, in addition, it was like... Um, our data set had three classifications, which was just like, uh, you know, people saying like, dislike, or, or the middle one, which is really ordinal data, but we treated it as categorical data. But then there was like spamminess and, and the, and I think the big one was quality. Like, is this, is this, are these like four square reviews, four square tips that we want to show people? Or is this just a monkey banging on the keyboard? Now, sometimes right. it's obvious. It's just a monkey banging on the keyboard. But in other times it's like, uh, I don't really know what's, what's high quality. Like we, we disagree about that. And so it was very, um, uh, uh, uh very, um, subjective. 
And, and yeah, that I mean, that's really one of the biggest problems I see in text classification, which is that if you can't get like smart humans to agree on what the right label should be, then you're going to have a real hard time getting a computer to be able to come up with them, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've also run into this problem and I it was, uh, well, I don't know if it was a problem, but so much of a, okay, we, we built a model. Maybe it was the sentiment analysis model. And I was like, okay, let's look at like the top hundred that it labeled as positive that we labeled as negative. So I looked yep. at the top hundred and most of them were like, well, we mislabeled it. So in other words, the, uh, the model was doing better than we were. And so I'm like, I asked my manager, I'm like, should I change these in our set? I don't know. It sounds awfully, uh, <laughs> it sounds awfully arbitrary, but we probably should. And so it was, um, it, I, I, I kind of ran into that. I don't know if that was necessarily a problem. It was just an interesting kind of situation. Yeah. I mean, my, my experience is that, look, if, if you have labeling errors that are sort of random, right, then, and you have enough data, the model is going to run around them, right? But if you have right. labeling errors that are like systematic, um, then the model is going to run those systematic errors as well. Yeah. Yeah. But when you look at like the top lists of disagreements, then it, it looks like you have much more, you, it looks like you have so many more labeling errors than you, than you really do, or at least in terms of percentage, because you're, you're literally focusing in on them. Yeah, because you're um, you're well, you're finding like the the worst mistakes, right? Like right, right. Th th this this was one that was like obvious to the computer, and and, and so we got it wrong. Um, and right. if you but if you'll get if you'll get the other end, then you know you, you'd find the opposite, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although interestingly, uh, there was a model that I did once that was not text classification, but it was trying to predict users' age and gender based on where they went in because Foursquare's location-based system. So it was like uh, locations you go and gender. And it turned out that the ones it got wrong, it wasn't mislabeled. It was usually just, you know, people who were married and were hanging out with their, um, you know, were, were just always with their with their wife or husband or their spouse, you know, opposite gender. So uh, it, 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 it made that that kind of error, but that was because of the, the nature of the model more than it wasn't like, oh, you're <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, you like to do things that the opposite gender does. It, it wasn't like that at all, which was kind of interesting. That, that, um, that's how you know you're doing it a long time ago, because today you'd get in trouble if you tried to predict people's gender. Oh, yeah. Well, it was 20. When was it? it was 2017? So it was getting there. I think I had to do a few like uh, caveats, like, "Hey, this is just a model. It's for marketing." Uh, but then I was totally fine. I don't know today. I don't know if I would even attempt that. Uh, but uh, but that happened. <laughs> um, so all right, uh, I, I want to uh, before we head out, I want to hear a little bit about uh, the book you wrote, "Data Science from Scratch." Um, you know we. We don't have time to go through all of it, but just like, what was it like to to, to write that? Why did you decide to write it? Um, tell me a little bit about that. Boy, so um, I wrote that book in 2014, so it's been a long okay. time now. Um, oh, okay. No, I no, I, I, mean, I, I talk about it. I'm just like, it, it requires me to yeah. delve into my like long ago. Yeah. I mean, the second edition came out in 2019, but um, so, so a couple things. One, uh, it's, it's a very like self-aggrandizing story. Like I wanted to you know, data science was becoming like a big thing. Um, and all these like, you know, famous data scientists were, were, were like coming up and, and getting quoted. And I was like, Oh, I want to be like a famous data scientist. So like, Oh, how, how can I do that when I'm just like some dude working in a startup? It's like, I know I'll, I'll write a book. And then, you know, I, um, studied math in school. Um, and I went to math grad school for a bit. And, and so I, 
have this very mathematical like pedagogy in my head as a way to learn things. And I like learning things kind of from first principles. Um, and, and so I thought, you know, uh, actually I, I, I pitched a book, uh, that was much bigger than the book I ended up writing, which like part one was, you know, here's all these models and here's how they work from first principles. And then part two is, um, here's the libraries you'd use if you wanted to use them, uh, actually in real life. And O'Reilly said, that's, that's two books and we're not giving you a two book contract because we've never heard of you. Um, and, and so, <laughs> um, I said, okay, fine. I'll write the first part. Someone else will write the second part. So it's basically the premise of the book is we're going to understand how data science tools and techniques work by building them ourselves in like base Python. Right. So, okay. Logistic regression. Uh, we are going to like code up logistic regression from scratch and then try it on some problems and like naive Bayes, we're going to code it up from scratch um, and then try it on some problems. And then, you know, the second edition, I added some more stuff and it goes all the way through like neural networks and RNNs and things like that um, that are, that are in there. So, you know, that was kind of, uh, that's the way I like thinking about it. And, and, and so that's how I wrote the book. One of the one of the things I've learned, so I just um, submitted like a, a paper to archive. It's like 30 pages on probability. And one of the hardest things that I ran into that I wasn't expecting was like how to order all the things that you want to talk about so that once you talk about something, you've already established all the necessary background and definition before that. And I, I, I felt like I spent so much time kind of reordering things and then reading through it and being like, oh, wait, this doesn't make sense because, you know, we haven't introduced this next thing yet. And so did you run into that problem at all? And I don't know. I just asked because it's like it's on my mind. And, and how um, did you guys do I wouldn't say I ran into that problem, but it was definitely something I had to take into account when I was kind of plotting out the book. And there, and so, you know, the way I read the book is I basically like made a list of chapters and then I did that kind of topological sort, like this chapter needs to come before this other chapter because I want to use um, this. And, uh, you know, I, I took the, uh, the original Andrew Ng uh, ML class, which was sort of like the first MOOC. Right. Um, and that class uh, used kind of gradient descent as an organizing principle, if you will. So uh, like, let's learn about gradient descent and now let's use it to solve a bunch of problems. And that was pretty influential on my way of thinking. And so my book, I kind of did something similar, which is that, you know, we go through gradient descent in great detail and now I can use it to do uh, linear regression and logistic regression and, and so on and, and so on. So, yeah. you know, it took a little bit of work, but in general, um, things were, I, I sort of designed it from the beginning so that I had things in the right order. Um, and there were a few things where it's like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to move this one topic into an earlier chapter than I would prefer to move it into. But for the most part, it wasn't uh, too bad. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of a topological sort planning uh, goes a long way. Yep. Uh, although I, I found sometimes, you know, you end up having to introduce things that you didn't even realize when you were, you were yep. writing about something. And, and so, actually, uh, that was one of the not exactly that, but like. One of the most humbling things about writing a book is that you discover that most of the things you thought you understood, you don't understand. So like when <laughs> yeah. it came time to write the section on like inference and hypothesis testing, and I started like writing out how does hypothesis testing work? And I quickly discovered that like, I did not understand it well enough. To, I, like I thought I understood it, but I did not understand it well enough to write about it. So I had to like go off and like study and like actually learn it so that I could write about it sensibly. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the benefits of writing too, because then you then you really understand something. It was like, well, if you if you can, it's also like if you can explain it back, then you understand it well enough. And there have definitely been things like I'm really excited about X, and then someone's like, explain it to me, and I'm like, I guess I don't understand it well enough to. Oh, I know. I, 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 I'm worried that. that my earlier explanations of Transformers were uh, not quite right enough, and someone's going to get angry at me. But well, I, I apologize <laughs> if that's. Don't the worry case. about. <laughs> Don't worry about it. This uh, this podcast is more of like a discussion with uh, people in in tech. This is kind of like th- this podcast is often like uh, what's on your mind pre book pre you know this is not hey we are this is like our our final uh, uh, course on on Bert. This is like hey. What, what's interesting to us now and, and what's on our mind about it to kind of I know, get people but ne- excited never, about it. never underestimate uh, the propensity of people to like listen to things and say, I can't believe you said that it works this way because it actually works this other way. And like, you <laughs> well, about it. I, I will, I will let you know if I get a, if I get an email about right. it. So, uh, um, but, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, I'm pretty sure you're good. Joel, thanks for coming on the show. Do you have any uh, last thoughts on what we talked about today? And uh, tell the audience where we can find out more about you and 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 where they can contact you and all that. Um, yeah, so um, I can be found on Twitter. It's uh, my name, at Joel Gruse, J-O-E-L-G-R-U-S. Um, I'm like one of the Twitter holdouts. As everyone else moves to Mastodon, I'm going to keep staying on Twitter because I like Twitter. Um, and I haven't found a Mastodon server whose terms of servants I, I, I can live with. Um, I also have a website, which I very rarely update, but uh, that's joelgrus.com. Uh, again, my name, J-O-E-L-G-R-U-S. Um, and all my contact information is there, but really Twitter's probably the best way to get in touch with me. All right. Awesome. Joel, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. That was a lot of fun. I've been busy conducting a lot of interviews, and we're really going to branch out over the next month, which is exciting. Next on deck is another Bayesian thinking interview, which for us, I guess, isn't branching out as much as it's going deep, but some of the further ones down are going to be branching out. We've got an interview on hardware, uh, which I think you'll find fascinating. We're going to try to intersperse these interviews with the solo shows and the discussions with Aaron on current events. And, you know, those solo shows and and co-hosted shows are also going to have the probability distribution of the week segments. Uh, Today's episode, once again, is localmaxradio.com slash 266, where you can get all the links, including the link to joelgruce.com to get uh, his website. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.